Hi, this is Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Books podcast, our series of conversations with leading authors in the field. Joining us today is Daniel Nexon of Georgetown University. He's the co-author with Alex Cooley of Barnard College of the new book, Exit from Hegemony, the Unraveling of the American Global Order, which was just published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this is a really interesting book about uh, international relations theory and America's place in the world. Um, tell us a little bit about what you think the main contribution of the exit from hegemony is and uh, what, you, what you were trying to achieve when you set out to write it. So on the academic or theoretical side, the main contribution is to explore peaceful or what well, is to explore pathways or ways in which hegemony unravels and hegemonic orders come apart short of great power war. As you know, a lot of the focus on in power transition theory and on hegemonic stability theory for quite some time was on whether or not during a situation where an incumbent dominant power was in relative decline and other powers were rising and potentially revisionist and thus challenging the great power, the focus was on whether or not there was a uh, and then the assumption often was that it was the war that caused uh, the collapse of the old hegemonic order and the creation of a new one, either a new one created by the victorious incumbent hegemon or a new one who was, would then be unfettered from pure competitors or an order created by the rising power to replace the old order. Uh, and we think that we sort of had this intuition when we started this project that most of the interesting stuff was actually happening during the transition itself and had to do with political contestation over order and that a lot of the ways in which uh, order unraveled would happen before you ever got to the Great Power War. And so we're interested in exploring that. In terms of contemporary more policy or more kind of what's going on in the world now, uh, I think what we try to do is we try to explain why we think that American global hegemony is already over and how the kinds of processes that we identify are playing out now and shaping uh, global politics today. So let's explore that just a little bit. Uh, you have a really interesting way of thinking about what exactly international order is uh, beyond simply the distribution of power and the, the visible stuff of hegemony. Walk us through a little bit the way you and Alex are theorizing the nature of international order. So we think that international order is not just a set of abstract rules and norms that are laid down by a hegemon and then potentially contested by other powers or ceded to by other powers. We think uh, that order is sort of like an ecosystem composed of uh, niches and uh, other kinds of sort of ways in which uh, international politics is structured. And the way I would illustrate that is that as China's been rising in uh, international politics, it has been developing and cultivating a lot of ties with a lot of our countries, some of which have been more successful, right? Some of which have involved successfully bringing in those countries into a kind of uh, increasingly alternative order uh, centered around uh, China. You think about things like the Asian infrastructure, international invest, the Asian International Investment Bank uh, or Infrastructure Bank. I always screw up what that acronym is. Um, <laughs> the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and just a host of other regional forums and sort of the BRICS Bank uh, or which is the Asian, which is the New Development Bank, uh, things like that. 
But if you look at the where China's kind of gone and where it initially went, it was in places in Africa and Latin America, uh, and to some degree now in the South Pacific, that were of a low, generally a low strategic priority of the United States, or to which the United States had generally kind of didn't care about competing in. Uh, and so, in an essence, where China's been going, and now this is starting to change, was in areas that were kind of relatively sparse in terms of American hegemonic order, where there wasn't a lot of hegemonic ordering by the United States, a lot of active ordering going on, or, or where what, there might be United States presence, but it was limited to a very specific domain like, like counterterror cooperation. Similarly, if you think about um, the process whereby uh, democratization stall out in post-communist space, and then the direction in which uh, democratic deconsolidation has been happening. Uh, you can see a story where uh, liberal ordering occurs in various kinds of densities or various kinds of effectiveness through Central Europe into Eastern Europe and then into the former Soviet Union. Uh, and places where the liberal ordering really didn't, never really worked, like Russia, are now becoming epicenters of a kind of rollback in places where the liberal ordering we thought was successful, but it was largely the European Union. Uh, ascension process, accession process, those are the places that are starting to kind of democratically deconsolidate, like Hungary, right, where recently we just had an indefinite state of emergency uh, declared in Orban take on dictatorial powers after uh, many years of, um, in fact, uh, reconfiguring Hungarian society and politics towards less of a democratic and more of a hybrid regime. But if you look at the so, Middle well, I was just going to say, when you look at the Middle East, it seems like this is an area where it's very, very dense with uh, U.S.-led institutions and allies, military bases and everything else, although, of course, very thin on the democratization or liberalization side of things. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things I, I didn't want to sort of give the whole, like, chapter on orders and how we should think about them because we have a lot to say about order and we're engaged in a lot of different debates i think some of which may or may not interest listeners but when we the way that we kind of uh, crudely stylize this idea about order as being a kind of ecology that structures um, behavior is in a couple of ways as one is we think about the infrastructure of order that is the kinds of ties and practices and to some degree institutions that make up international order a topography of international order across the world. And the other way we think about it is in terms of the state of norm contestation or, or norm agreement. Uh, and so in some places you have a very kind of dense commitment to a set of norms. Often we're now talking about liberal norms, but they could be other norms. For example, we can think about a Comic-Con in the Soviet bloc uh, during the Cold War. Uh, and in some places you have, and, and so you, we sort of have, you know, one of those, you know, we're a social science book, we have a two by two. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on the Middle East, but my sense is that you have, uh, while it may look in many ways like a, a fairly dense infrastructure in terms of the U.S. presence, and particularly the U.S. basing and security guarantee presence, um, it's actually nowhere near as thick as someplace like Europe, where you have multiple redundant institutions all of which are, are sort of on a very similar normative page, right? Or, or have certain kind of similar, uh, what we call arch architectures of order. Uh, and so um, while 
so in, in some respects, actually, compared to the kind of core regions of U.S. hegemonic ordering, that is places where the United States, what we call the core of the American system, the only, Middle East is, is comparatively sparse. It's not as sparse as some other regions of the world in terms of uh, U.S. hegemonic ordering. Certainly, it's not as smart as South Africa. But what is interesting is that given this long U.S. history, this long U.S. presence, the form in which U.S. hegemony is taken and the way that regional organizations have worked, it's not integrated. Uh, the way that, let's say, Europe is, or in the way that in some northeast parts of Northeast Asia are, uh, and I think you can see that if you if you start to think, and, and that is of course related to or shows up in the thing you just mentioned, the fact that mo many of the regimes are, are autocratic, are resistant to liberalizing pressures. Um, when they engage on, in multilateral politics, it's often to shield themselves from such pressures. So getting on human rights councils and then making sure that those human rights pressures and the councils don't, don't go too far in terms of disrupting domestic stability, things like that. But it's really interesting, though, the way you describe uh, the breakdown of, hege of hegemonic order, uh, you know, often happening um, at that level below, uh, almost below the surface. And you think about, you know, China's growing role in, the, in, in Gulf energy, for example, or the more obvious things like Russia's role in Syria. But also, you know, I was thinking about, as I read the book, the way that key U.S. allies, the ones that, that have been most central to the way the, U, the architecture of the U.S. Uh, hegemony in the region, uh, were so resistant to uh, U.S. policy preferences uh, over the last 10 years. Things like the Arab Spring or uh, the nuclear deal with Iran, where instead of working together, you really saw a lot of intra-alliance uh, resistance and foot dragging. And a lot, it seems like it creates a lot of opportunities for the sorts of breakdown that you describe in the book. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one thing we have to be careful about is that, and this is a point that's been made by a number of other smarter people, is that there's a distinction between international order. I like to use the term international ordering because I think uh, international order implies a kind of static, complete thing, when in fact we're talking about ongoing processes of ordering, uh, although those processes may be at cross purposes. So we need to draw a distinction between that and specific kinds of policy debates and policies that are adopted. The United States adopts a lot of policies, for example, that are not terribly liberal and not terribly ordered. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's no international order that the U.S. operates within or that the United States is helping to shape. But those policy disputes can, in fact, um, have effects on um, how ordering works. Uh, so, for example, clearly the United States, uh, when it was trying to get the JCPOA through, was trying to change some fairly significant things about the way it related to the Middle East to essentially try to cope with the Iran problem, I think really as a prelude to some degree of retrenchment ultimately. Uh, and obviously some of its allies were extremely resistant to that because for them, uh, the one of the primary dynamics in the Middle East is a contest over regional ordering of which the United States is only one participant, even before Russia showed up in, in which Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia and, and in many ways Qatar were very important participants. And so there you can sort of think of that not just as a policy dispute, but as a set of disputes over what Middle Eastern order should look like in which the United States had less, you know, the United States had enormous ability to use its uh, financial power uh, in order to help bring about uh, the JCPOA and was able to convince a number of uh, its uh, European allies and some of its rivals like Russia to get on board with the process. 
but as you know, it had to engage in huge payouts uh, and huge concessions to allies like Saudi Arabia to try to reassure them. And those types of bargaining, those kinds of bargaining processes uh, are actually fairly fundamental the way that, that ordering works and that hegemony works. And the big change now, of course, has been, and this is already contained in what I suggested about there being a regional contest for order going on. The big, biggest change since the 1990s has been the development, the fact that many more powers, not just China and Russia, but also Saudi Arabia, have the capacity to and have been engaged in efforts to provide some of the kinds of goods we associate with international order and with, hegemon, with hegemons, private and club goods, development assistance, that sort of thing, and that these are increasingly in uh, sort of conflict with one another. They're increasingly representing contestation over the shape of order rather than, say, collusion to maintain a similar kind of broad order. No, I, I think, and that sounds right from a Middle East perspective. If you think of the way, for example, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have become such central players in not just regional, but global finance, um, and the ways that this allows them to, as you say, you know, to, to offer alternative goods um, and, to, and to try and create their own kind of regional order. Yeah, and we've seen that elsewhere. I mean, we, we saw, a, I think, a largely failed attempt to do that, but it looked like it was working for a while in Latin America with Venezuela under Chavez. Um, and actually, the, what, the, what the countries that Chavez was supporting are now being supported by China and Russia. So it, it, you know, it had downstream effects. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it's important to notion. It's important when we talk about um, the sort of unraveling of the U.S.'s ability to engage in uh, sort of unbridled or hegemonic ordering. That it's not just a story about uh, the rise of a potential peer competitor in China or the activities of a traditional great power like Russia. It's also a story about the diffusion of power outward from this, you know, it's the diffusion of power such that it's, you know, you have states that are not global great powers, but are also capable of playing this game. So let's go there then and kind of follow through. Um, you break it down in, in three separate chapters, uh, three pathways um, of how you see this exit from hegemony or the, the degradation of orders from above, from below, and from within. Uh, let's talk about how that might, what that looks like. Um, so maybe start with like the um, exit from above. So exit from above. So I like to tell the story uh, through the story we tell in the first chapter. Is that okay? Um, I like to sort of explain this in terms of understanding what exactly the unipolar moment was and why we have uh, confidence that it's pretty much gone. So the, the, the big change, of course, in the 1990s from past periods was the United States became a global hegemon, not just a, a hegemon ordering parts of the world, but the only state that really could uh, engage in political ordering everywhere. Um, and that was to large degree because of the collapse of this, it really the collapse of the Soviet bloc, right? The collapse of the Soviet Union left the United States on its own. And the way we tell that story often in uh, security studies, which is where I come out of, is we talk about that as a story of unipolarity. You know, mm. The United States uh, ha is spending, you know, I don't know, about 30% of world GDP, 24% of world GDP. I mean, I'm sorry, 30% to 24%, I can't remember the exact figures, uh, of world spending on the, on the military is the United States. Uh, Russia's chugging along at less than that, but competing with it, and all of a sudden, Russia kind of drops, or the Soviet Union drops off the pace of the earth, right? So, because it collapses and its military spending collapses and its military uh, 
uh, gets into real trouble. Uh, and so the United States is left alone as a military power. And we think about that as military unipolarity. But the other side of that story uh, is that the United States suddenly has uh, what we call a patronage monopoly. It's not just a military domain. There is no other set of great powers out there who are interested in promulgating an alternative conception of order the way that the Soviet Union was. And so if you want things like development assistance, if you want things like security guarantees, uh, you pretty much are going to the United States or you're going to the United States and its allies. And that's the other key element is that all the other remaining great powers, Germany, France, Britain, Japan were part of the American security system and while and part of the American hegemonic system. And while they might disagree with the United States and have some conflicts with the United States, they were more or less on a similar page when it came to what kinds of conditions uh, you associate with aid or security. And they were all very on a very similar page in terms of broad, the broad sort of brushstrokes of what international politics ought to look like. So it was a patronage monopoly, but in truth, it was a patronage cartel. And that's important because I think the role that those other great powers played in the 90s, uh, either by actively helping the United States or engaging their, in their own liberal ordering projects like the European Union, or by simply not developing their military capabilities and not you know, accepting the United States as a kind of protector, sometimes gets overlooked. Although, ironically, John Mearsheimer calls this unbalanced multipolarity rather than unipolarity, and I think our position is more similar to his. So yeah, it's, have, it's a very different way of thinking about unipolarity. I think it, I, I like it. Yeah, and so, so in that side, so that's the first part of the story. The second part of the story is that because there are no other options and because there's no other order, right, the, the main rival order has lost legitimacy. Um, on the demand side, a lot of states, that is at, at the sort of, among smaller states and regional players, the view is you gotta get good with the United States and you've gotta go along with, with, with liberal order. This is, again, not universal. There are holdouts, there's Cuba, um, China is a holdout on the political side. I don't want to. I, I, I don't want to make the story seem too homogenous or, or too universal. It, it, I'm obviously drawing a, a very stylized version, but by and large, the recognition that the United States was the only game in town, combined with the fact that there was no vision of order that had that kind of purchase anymore, meant that there weren't a lot of there. There weren't a large number of states who were sort of looking for exit options, even if they had them, or looking for alternatives, even if they could get them. And then the third thing that happened, which is the thing that is really most overlooked, was the 1990s, and this is something that you know a lot about from your research, was the period when we talk about really the development of an international civil society, a transnational civil society. And that transnational civil society was very liberal, right? It was composed of a lot of liberal NGOs and liberal activists and other actors who are pushing human rights, political rights, anti-corruption, all those sorts of arms control, all those sorts of like goodies we associate with international liberalism. And they were, we argue, in many ways, the foot soldier of liberal ordering in the 1990s. That is, if you went to a post-communist space in particular, you would find dozens, many, many dozens of NGOs teaching people how to do a free press, teaching people how to uh, engage in civil disobedience, stuff that would come back to haunt some of these regimes during the Keller revolutions. Uh, uh, engaged in other kinds of sort of democracy and liberalization building uh, in really kind of promulgating these norms on the ground. And so you had these three kind of layers, which we, which are kind of ordering from above, great powers and, mm -hmm. and patronage, uh, ordering from below, that is the demand side, uh, and then 
transnational ordering or ordering via um, sort of movements or civil society, which is uh, what we call kind of um, transnational contestation or not, or in this case, not trans, much transnational right. contestation. Um, so all these things were actually were what produced the 1990s as a period of kind of the apogee of, of, of liberal order in the sense that history might be over, or it might just be liberalism here on out. And the key thing is that all of those vectors have now reversed. So on the exit from above side, we now have great powers uh, who are offering alternative visions of what order should look like, and they're putting resources behind building those alternative visions. So China is the most spectacular instance of this um, through a lot of new multilateral institutions, new fora, uh, development assistance, uh, building lots of diplomatic networks. I think China just surpassed the United States in the number of embassies and consulates uh, in the world, or by some measure now is a broader diplomatic reach than the United States. Uh, and has even uh, engaged in a nascent project of, say, building overseas basing relationships, which mm -hmm. involve often giving large amounts of private goods in exchange for for basing. And obviously, we all know about the Vote Enrolled Initiative, which is a which is really a kind of a kind of uh, it's more of a label for all these development activities, um, which is having implications in the Middle East and and even in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so you've got no longer a patronage monopoly. And even if countries like China or Russia, which has less money to play around with, but it's gotten very good at finding weak spots in this, in this ecosystem and pushing at them, uh, even if those countries aren't even interested in promulgating a radically different order, the very fact that they're there means that weaker states now have options and they can leverage those options uh, to reduce potential pressure to go along with U.S. and, and Western uh, visions of what they ought to be doing. Uh, they can exit entirely. Uh, and some states no longer you know, need IMF funds anymore because they've gone to China. And those sorts of factors then weaken the ability, the sort of mechanisms of ordering and the shape of ordering, all of which are contained in goods provision. I and talked you, a lot about economic goods, but they're also security goods, right? Yeah, you definitely see that in the Middle East, where even very close U.S. allies now, they, they go to Moscow to explore arms deals. You've got, you know, you look at Turkey and getting, you know, alternative uh, uh, air defense systems and everything. And, you're, and you can really see what you're talking about uh, play out very clearly um, uh, in, in, in this region. Right. And then the exit from below is the demand side. And it's really kind of the same story, but from the perspective of weaker states rather than just the great powers. And we argue that for a variety of reasons, there's been growing disenchantment with liberal order, which has created more demand for these kinds of exit options, plus the fact that there are now alternative, potentially successful models to look to other than the U.S. version of liberal, liberal democratic capitalism means that you get sort of ideas about alternatives. You can do authoritarian capitalism, be incredibly successful. Look at the Chinese, for example. Uh, and that produces more demand for exit. And these are, are kind of feedback loops. And then finally, we look, and this is, I think, I don't know how the story plays out in the Middle East, although I think it does play out in Israel to some degree, at least. We look at the rise of transnational counter-order movements. Movements. Uh, and particularly, we're interested in how you could tell the story about, about you know, sort of radical Islamism as being a, a, a counter-order movement that was incredibly potent uh, earlier in the life cycle of U.S. hegemony, and I think remains a, not, a, not an irrelevant force at all in the Middle East. But you can also talk about, we're particularly interested in the rise of far-right populism, which we see as part of a broader reversal of transnational liberal society. 
uh, and that um, and that kind of pressure we think is also in this kind it can be in a positive feedback loop with the others the existence of alternative models helps to drive counter order movements uh, the existence of exit options actually plays into counter movement dynamics and we have a whole discussion which, of multipolar populism and the way in which a lot of populists mm -hmm. whether they're in the European right or other people like Duterte in the Philippines in, or Erdogan in Turkey consciously play on the idea that we now have a multipolar world and we now have options and that means we can better defend national sovereignty and national interests because we don't have to be dependent on one power uh, and we can play the kind of great power political game and we can go to these alternative suppliers. So those are the sort of three kind of pathways that are not primarily about mm -hmm. things that are happening in the US per se, but the rise of these counter order movements in the broader sort of liberal core that is driving exit from within. And as you can probably guess where this is headed, we argue that Trumpism is precisely such that kind of a movement. And so you have now the hegemon partially captured, or at least the White House captured by a counter order movement that is interested in disrupting and reordering international politics away from the way that the hegemon had been doing it for many, many years. And that's the way that I think a lot of people are going to approach this book, um, you know, including, including the cover of the book, uh, is going to be from, uh, from the Trump perspective. Um, but what's really striking, though, and I think very important, is that you know, unlike, unlike some people, you're not making an argument that basically you had a perfectly fine and robust U.S. Uh, hegemonic order, and then Trump came in and messed everything up. Um, it, it, it's a, it seems to be a very different story from that. And so, you know, how would you think about Trump as kind of symptom versus cause? And it, it is what he's doing irreversible, given uh, the, the kinds of um, underlying trends that you explore. So there are both continuities and discontinuities with Trump. Uh, I think a lot of people have talked about the continuities, particularly um, on the policy side, right? If you look, for example, at, at the actual policy practice of the Trump administration towards Russia, it looks like a kind of continuation on the same curve that had started after 2014 in the Obama administration, increased sanctions, and so on and so forth. Obviously, Trump has not ever fully extricated the United States from some of the Mideast commitments that he claimed he was going to. And in many ways, the debates that we have now about Trump and the liberal order are extraordinarily reminiscent of debates we had during the George W. Bush administration. Uh, in fact, I'm teaching a grand strategy course right now, and we just did the debates about neoconservatism mm -hmm. and the cries of the end of the liberal order coming from liberal internationalists um, are almost indistinguishable huh. from uh, the ones now. But we argue that Trump is a break in important ways, and it has to do with the fact that Trump fundamentally rejects certain things that even the Bush administration bought into about, say, the importance of liberal political values at some level in U.S. foreign policy, which Trump doesn't really care about at all, and in which the Trump administration, even though it sometimes talks about them, is really removed from the game in very important ways in terms of the mechanisms and sinews of U.S. foreign policy. And while George W. Bush was hostile, and he had elements who were extremely hostile to multilateralism in his administration, like John Bolton, but um, by and large, the neoconservative position on multilateralism is it was fine as long as it, it led to liberal ends. And when it didn't lead to liberal ends, because, say, authoritarians in the United Nations were thwarting U.S. 
liberal ordering, then you could bypass it, right? That was the kind of neoconservative position. And this is actually a sort of interesting debate within liberal internationalism about the trade-offs between liberal intergovernmentalism, that is multilateralism, uh, and liberal ordering on the ground that is pushing democracy and open trade. And these things are often in tension with one another uh, for the very reasons the neoconservative said, if you give states multilateral and sovereign equality, authoritarian states can shield themselves and use that those those settings to try to you know shield themselves from those kinds of pressures mm-hmm. so he doesn't care about any of that and and so he really has a, a view of the world i think which goes something like this um if we can marginalize and get rid of multilateral institutions in what we would call liberal intergovernmentalism as a way of doing international politics then international politics will simply be uh, conducted by and for the strongest powers of which the United States is one, if not the preeminent. And the United States will be able to use its superior capabilities to get what it wants, right, to overcome opposition. And so the preference for bilateral transactionalism is a, pre- you know, if you think about the geostrategic logic of that, you know, if the United States engages in a trade agreement with Britain on its own, the United States has enormous leverage over Britain right? because its market is much larger, its military capabilities are much better, but primarily because its market is a ton larger. If it deals with the United European Union, it's dealing more with an equal power. And so can't get that kind of bargain, right? So he would prefer to essentially use bilateral uh, negotiations to try to overpower other states, including U.S. allies, in order to extract maximum concessions, or what, or at least concessions that he thinks would look good, while avoiding these settings where those states can collude or work together, or there's more of a uh, sense of equality and rules and norms that shape deliberation and shape decision making. The problem with that is twofold. The first is that those deals, you can get those kinds of deals, but they tend to be ephemeral and they tend to disrupt long-standing institutionalized relationships. The second problem, of course, is that the United States is comparatively weaker than it was when it negotiated a lot of the deals that it negotiated to set up these kind, this kind of liberal intergovernmentalism. It is not as powerful in relative terms as it was in the 1990s during liberal ordering part two, and is certainly not as powerful as it was in the 1940s and 50s during liberal ordering part one. And so it's actually in a kind of weaker position. And I think you see that because you see that um, what's happened when Trump has kind of tried to marginalize and pull away from, if not outright out of uh, international settings like the kinds of ones we're talking about, all it's meant is that it's made them more attractive for states that don't like some of the things that the United States pushes. So it's made them more attractive for China and Russia because now they can kind of get more of what they want in them. Uh, and so rather than marginalize international institutions, it's just marginalized the U.S. from international institutions. That's really interesting. And it really does give us a new and different way of thinking about what's happening to American hegemony and what we might expect in the future. Um, we've been speaking with uh, Dan Nexon of Georgetown University about the book he uh, co-authored with Alexander Cooley, uh, Exit from Hegemony, The Unraveling of the American Global Order, which was just published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Dan, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. <laughs>